towards the end of this week's Parsha at Perk Kavdalid, after many lengthy details of very different halachos, Jewish civil law, the story returns to Mamad Harsinai. And the Torah narrative returns us to the foot of the mountain where Moshe is told to return, go back up the mountain with Aaron, his two oldest sons, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders from amongst the nation. Prior to ascending the mountain, Moshe informs the people of Hashem's wor- words. He builds an altar, a mezbeach, 12 pillars at the foot of the mountain, symbolizing the 12 tribes. He reads something called the Sefer Habris, which elicits from the nation the famous response of Na'asev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen. And then this group partially ascends the mountain. They have some kind of mysterious, transcendent, a prophetic a vision, a miraculous vision of God with some kind of sapphire stone that is bright uh, and shiny. And then in conclusion, we are told a most ambiguous verse, the Apostle tells us, Yisrael, to these nobles, Aaron's children, the elders, Lo shalach yado, Hashem did not outstretch out His hand. What is that talking about? Why would we have thought Hashem stretched out His hand? What would that have meant? Not clear. The verse concludes, V'yechasu elokim, they saw God, they ate and they drank. Completely, completely ambiguous, somewhat conf- really confusing uh, pasuk. So, not surprising with all of the confusion and ambiguity, the Mepharshim spent a lot of time analyzing this section. And I'd like to divide our presentation now into the two fundamental questions, I would say. Number one is, when did all of this happen? We re- finished last week's Parsha Yisra with the giving of the Torah, Muhammad Har Sinai. Then we have this huge break of the bulk of Parshas Mishpatim detailing uh, with many, many, many psukim and tremendous details about Jewish civil law. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, we have these 11 psukim in Parak Kavdalid taking us back to the story at Harsinai. When did, actually, when did all this happen? How do we understand the sequence of events? This is, in fact, a fundamental machlokas. Rashi, on the one hand, basing himself on the comments of the Medrash in the Mechilta, says we have a principle of uh, biblical interpretation not necessarily did the events occur in the sequence that we read about them in the Torah. Sometimes the Torah will give us a certain sequence of story which is not necessarily based on how they actually occurred. And this, says Rashi, is an example of this. Despite the fact that we're reading this after the Torah was given, after we read about the Torah last week, in fact, claims Rashi, this section actually took place on the 4th of Sivan, a few days before the giving of the Torah. Rashi, in his comments here, goes through a lengthy and detailed reconstruction of events, starting with the 4th of Sivan, where, according to Rashi, that was when the instructions about not coming close to the mountain were given. Rashi goes on to explain how there was a whole group of laws that were given to the Jewish people prior to the giving of the Torah, such as the seven Noahide laws, Moshe reviews and writes down the mitzvahs that had been given to the Jewish people prior when they were at the desert stop of Marah. Uh, he goes through and Moshe writes down the whole Torah from Bereshis until this moment. That's all referred to as Sefer Habris. That's when he made the altar and the pillars. And then only then did he go up with Aaron and then came Matan Torah. In other words, says Rashi in the Medrash, all of the events described here are prepare, preparatory and preceded the revelation of the giving of the Torah in Harsinai. Disagreeing with all of this is the Ramban. The Ramban says, in fact, the events occurred exactly in the sequence that they are described in the Torah. That is to say that what we read here in Parak Chavdalid did not happen before Harsinai. It wasn't a preparation for the giving of the Torah. But rather, it was an integral part 
of Matan Torah. And when the Torah says here, the Moshe read this thing called Sefer Habris, says Ramban, that actually refers to all the detailed laws that we've just gotten through reading in Parshas Mishpatim themselves. And all of this was aimed at the people having informed consent when they said Na'asev Nishma. It wasn't the blind faith, the leap of faith that is sometimes interpreted and celebrated. Rather, says the Ramban, they had informed consent. They had reviewed a sampling of the halachos. They understood even in a small sample what the Torah would be demanding of them. And therefore, they were able to say Na'asev Nishma truly and fully after having received uh, the Torah uh, in the, the parts that they had now received. All of that being said, let's turn our attention now to the end of the section, which is this mysterious transcendent prop- prophetic experience that they had. They saw something, and then the Torah says something about Hashem not stretching out His hand towards them. What, what are we talking about? Here also there is a major debate. Rashi says that this group, the children of Aaron, the elders, were given a glimpse of the divine in a very, very high level, very transcendent experience, but the people did not respond appropriately. Aaron's sons and the elders responded instead by indulging in food and drink, and therefore, even though they deserve death, the Torah testifies that Hashem stayed their execution. He did not do what they should have done. Lo shalach yado. He did not kill them. He did not punish them, even though they deserved it, because he did not want, want to mar the joy of the moment of the giving of the Torah. And rather, Hashem found subsequent moments uh, while they were in the desert to exact the deserving punishment that they uh, truly had deserved, given their mistake. Unlike Rashi, Many other Mepharshim think that they did nothing wrong. Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, Babeinu Bechaye, they all say that this just alludes to not something that they did wrong, but rather the fact that there is a typical, natural, expected danger of coming so close to the divine, something that is so intensely transcendent, is just objectively dangerous. And the Torah is describing the fact that despite that fact, they survived, they were okay. And any eating and drinking that they did, as the Torah describes, was in fact appropriate according to these commentaries. It was an appropriate rejoicing for such an experience, just like they compare it to the Kohen Gadol, who we know would make a su'uda to celebrate his safe emergence from the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur, because going into something like the Kodesh HaKadoshim is considered dangerous. So too, they had an intense spiritual experience that could have been dangerous, but they survived it, and therefore they celebrated. Lastly, the Sforno says that in general, Moshe's Navu was superior, because he was able to have prophetic experiences while still maintaining his physical and normal human faculties. Other prophets could only see Hashem in a dream when they were sleeping, when they're not fully human. It was otherwise too much for them. So at this moment, they ate and drank. It's a way of communicating the fact that Hashem allowed them to have such a high intensive spiritual and prophetic experience while still being totally human. They had a Moshe-like experience. They didn't have to remove from the physical reality to have this transcendent experience. And this is something that is an ideal for all of us to be able to have spiritual experiences, but some will remain in the physical world. Towards the end of this week's Parsha, we read about a Sefer Habris, a book of the covenant that will further bind the Jewish people to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and express their commitment to him. And when Moshe reads this to the Jewish people, we are told in Parach Avdalet, Pasuk Zayin, V'yikach Sefer Habris, V'yikra Ba'azne Ha'am, he read it to the people, V'yomru kol asher diber Hashem, na'aseh v'nishma. The people responded very famously and resoundingly, Everything that you have read to us in the name of Hashem, we will do and we will listen. Na'aseh v'nishma. What is less well known or often overlooked is just a few psukim earlier in Pasuk Gimel, we read about a very similar statement. Moshe has told the Jewish people about all these various laws 
that we are learning in this parsha. V'yan kolam kolachad, everyone answered in one voice. V'yamru called v'ramasher diber Hashem nasa. They commit to do everything that Moshe has taught them in the name of Hashem. If we think about both of these sukkim, presumably the part of the statement which is deserving such praise, which genuinely reflects a commitment on behalf of the Jewish people, is the word nasa. That is to say, the Jewish people are making a full and open-ended commitment that what we're hearing now and into the future, anything that God tells us, nasa, we will do. That is the essence of their commitment, and that is what seems to be so wonderful about what they're saying. It's the focus on nasa. However, the fact that in the second pasuk it mentions that afterwards there will be a nishma, that seems to be incidental, uh, perhaps it's not negative, but it doesn't seem to be something that would per se enhance the commitment. The commitment was already expressed with the word nasa. However, if that's the case, Ramosha Feinstein wonders, why is it that the Gemara in Masech Shabbos and Daf Peiches, when it describes the incredible level of commitment that the Jewish people reached during and in the aftermath of Har Sinai, the Torah tells us, excuse me, the Gemara tells us that when the Jewish people said Naase v'nishma, the double commitment mentioned in the latter Pasuk, and Pasuk Zion, Yotasabaskal of Amra Migila Raz Lebanai, that the a heavenly voice uh, declares that there's some special mystical secret that is contained in these two words, and wow, unbelievable that the Jewish people have expressed it. Sask or Moshe, I don't understand. In what way is this latter Pasuk any more any better, is it superior than the initial Pasuk? In the initial Pasuk, they already had said in Pasuk Gimel, everything that Hashem says, Nasa, we will do. And then a few Pasukim later, they say everything that Hashem tells us, Nasa v'nishma. In what way is Nasa v'nishma better, more sincere, more wholehearted, more profound commitment on behalf of the Jewish people? The essence of the commitment is the word Nasa, and that was already mentioned a few Pesukim earlier in the initial Pasuk. So how come the Gemara gives such praise and extols the latter double term of Nasa v'nishma? In what way, asks Sir Moshe, is that in any way superior to the initial commitment of Nasa? Sir Moshe actually suggests two possible answers. His first answer is that we have to understand the nature of the Torah is that it was only given once. And all of the laws and the principles that are contained in the Torah were not obviously meant only for that generation or a few generations, but are meant to last forever. How do we know what to do now and in the last thousands of years if we only got the Torah all the way back at Har Sinai? So we are given a set of principles of interpretation, and the Jewish people, as represented by the great rabbinic leaders in every generation, are empowered to interpret and apply the Torah in the ways that they best understand from generation to generation. However, says Ramosha, the key to making sure that in each generation that interpretation, that application is authentic, is if it is done in a way that expresses the continuity of the Mesorah. Says Ramosha, Yeshon HaMesorah, Ketzad Lefaresh, Torah. we have a tradition orally transmitted from generation to generation on how to interpret the Torah. Many of the halachos, in fact, are explicitly derived and transmitted by this oral tradition. And therefore, says Rav Moshe, it's only if someone has this authentic tradition, which he heard from his teachers, who heard from his teachers, etc., only then can we be sure that their interpretation, which is 
new for the current generation, but based on the principles of tradition that this rabbi had heard from previous generations, only then can we assume that it is authentic. If it is done with the precedent and the methodology and the tradition that the great scholar had received from his previous teachers and generations that came before that. Says Rav Moshe, that dialectic, on the one hand, interpreting in a new way, but at the same time constantly and unapologetically looking back to make sure that we are seriously and fully in continuity with previous generations and tradition, that dialectic or even duality, that is contained in the words, na'aseh v'nishma. Yes, we will do. We will live the Torah uh, and do everything that is relevant in this generation. However, it is always based on Venishma, that which we heard from previous generations. What a beautiful, beautiful explanation about such an important topic that Armosha suggests. However, he then adds a second interpretation, and he suggests that a person must always be in the moment and in the status of being an Oset. The mindset of being a doer, of being committed to Hashem, we have to always be ready and at the call, beck and call of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we're always committed. However, says Ramosha, we're not doing mitzvahs every second. Uh, how do we fulfill this idea of we're always at the status of doing for Hashem? So says Ramosha, it's a mindset. If we're always at Hashem's service, we're always with an open ear and always willing to hear the next command, the next mission, and if right now there's a momentary break, that's fine, but we're always open to, our, our, our phone line, so to speak, is always open, ready for the call, then we have the status, even when we're not acting, as still being an Evid Hashem, as someone who's an Oseh. And therefore, says Rav Moshe, if a person is always, Muchan Lishmoah, he's always ready to hear the call, that even at the moment when he's not actively doing anything, he's still Begeder Oseh. Because he's ready and always available, that gives him the status of always being acting for Hashem. He's always an Oseh, because he is an Ishma. This week's parsha begins with the famous opening pasuk, And these are the laws, the statutes, the rules that you shall place before them. And what follows is a very lengthy uh, parsha, which includes many, many, many mitzvos, uh, incredibly dense uh, parsha when it comes from the legal perspective. It's not so much of a story as much as it is overwhelmingly a list of the halachos of the Torah, the first such parsha we have in the entire Chumash, which is so predominantly law or halacha-based, and it's also worth noting that the overwhelming majority of these laws, in fact, are interpersonal, but I'm the Havero, uh, Jewish civil law, tort, uh, and the like. And the rabbis, Chazal, in the Medrash Rabbah, here in Parsha Lamed, uh, are particularly struck in their commentary, extensive commentary, I should say, on this opening verse, by two specific issues. Number one is, why so many mitzvos? Why so dense? And number two, uh, specifically the juxtaposition with the end of last week's parsha, which of course was the Aser Sedibros. Why the juxtaposition between these two sections? So, to take the first question first, the Medrash says in Simon Vav here, Bo re'e kamatziba kadosh baruchu b'parshazu. Al kol davar v'davar, says the Medrash. Wow! Let's contemplate for a moment just how many mitzvos and how comprehensive these mitzvos are that are contained in this parsha. And the Medrash points out that every part of human society is touched by the various laws. We have from free men 
to the Parsha's beginning, which discusses the Jewish notion of slavery uh, and such. We have every other type of human interaction, and even uh, one, at least one Pasuk that deals with the accidental injuring of a pregnant woman, which leads to her unwanted uh, miscarriage and the discussion of the responsibility and the penalty for the person who caused that miscarriage, uh, and the penalty for the loss of the uh, life of the fetus, of the unborn baby. And the Medrash says, wow, this is incredible. There's no aspect of human life, no part of human interaction, no part of society from the earliest to the latest to the oldest, uh, to the youngest, to the highest, to the lowest. Everything is touched by the Torah in general and symbolized uh, by this parsha, why is that? And the Medrash touches on something very real and human. Uh, I think many of us, uh, I certainly see this. Uh, you could say with teenagers and such, but I think if we're honest, adults as well. Uh, very often, we think that the Torah's comprehensive reach and the overwhelming number of mitzvos, which seem to guide every part of our life, certain people sometimes, I would say, often uh, feel this is a burden. Why did Hashem do this? So says the Medrash, it's a mistake. And it gives a marshal of a king whose son, the prince, is going out and there's many, many rules he has to follow. His father gives him a whole protocol. Why does he do that? Does the father not love his son? Does he not want him to have a good time? Says the Medrash, he does this, of course, because the son is so beloved to him and he's aware with his experience and wisdom of life that if these protocols are not kept, the prince could be vulnerable, could get himself in trouble and in any way be damaged. Says the Medrash, so to Hashem, Hisr Yisrael ala mitzvos, lama shem chavivin alav yosem yam We're more beloved than the angels. Hashem loves us more than anything else, and therefore all these laws and rules, even though admittedly we don't always understand exactly why that's the case, but nevertheless, all these laws and rules have been set up in order for us to, based on Hashem's infinite wisdom, have a better life, a successful life, and a happy life. It's actually because He loves us, they're for our, be- for our best interests, and they're certainly not to, God forbid, oppress us. The other two madrashim I want to share with you address the second question I mentioned, which is the juxtaposition of the opening uh, pasuk in our parsha, the opening section, all these laws, and in fact, the given of the Ten Commandments, the Aserah Sadibros on Sinai. And specifically, the matter seems to be bothered by the fact that it's not just the Proximity of the two parshios, but the opening word is ve'elah mishpatim vav, and these are the mishpatim. Why the letter vav? And it sounds like the Medrash says that this is a vav hachibor. A letter vav connects two things. After all, if parshas mishpatim was really a new beginning, completely detached and severed from everything that came before it, it would make no sense to begin with and. However, the Vav HaChibor tells us that, in fact, this is just part two. This is connected to something that came before it. The Aser Sedebros were part one, and Ve'el Mishpatim, these continue. Why is that important for us to know? What is the Torah trying to teach us in a subtle way by that juxtaposition, the proximity in that letter Vav, beyond the actual content of Parshas Mishpatim? So in one comment, uh, the Medrash tells us we have to realize that just like Hashem is Hizir al-Hadibros, Kachisir al-Adin. And I think that this is alluding to the fact that we sometimes think of religion as being purely ritual-based and just about a relationship with Hashem. And we should realize that Ve'ela Mishpatim, such a deep dive into every part of a human interaction, even the murky and the muddy and the messy parts of life, all of which are contained in generally Jewish civil law, and specifically in this week's Parsha, all of those are just as much part of the Torah 
as the Aser Debros. And in fact, says the Medrash, we have to realize that the Torah understands Shabo HaOlam Talui. Because the truth is that the whole world and its ability to function in any meaningful way as a society is predicated on this aspect of halacha, of Jewish civil law. As the Pasuk says, Melech Mishpat Yamid Aretz, and Tzion Mishpat Tipadeh. The only way to have a functioning moral society is based on a structure of civil law, and the Torah's version of that, Parshas Mishpatim, the Mitzvah Smeram Lechavero, are in fact crucial to the flourishing of any society, certainly a Torah society. In the preceding paragraph, in Semen Yadalid, the Medrash says something similar, but I think with a little bit of a, tw- a different twist, it focuses on the spiritual dimension of the Mitzvah Spenom Lechavero and the Jewish civil law, and in fact compares the uh, corpus of law that's in this week's Parsha to Yiras Shamayim. And the Medrash says, just like a person can have many other mitzvos, but it's comparable to a farmer who harvests tremendous amounts of crops, but he doesn't have if he doesn't have the proper storage facility all those crops will rot and they'll go to waste. So too, no matter how many mitzvahs you have, if you don't have the proper yirat shamayim, the mitzvahs themselves will not end up lasting. So too, says the Medrash, by comparison, if you have all the other mitzvahs, but you don't have the idea of Jewish civil law, of Parshas Mishpatim, that's also something that is absolutely necessary to sustain the rest of your mitzvah observance, and Hashem will judge you based on that. It's not enough to just have one, one certainly needs the other as well. Many Mepharshim wonder why our Parsha begins with the Eved Ivri, the Jewish slave. This is especially true given the fact that the Gemara says, and Rashi quotes this, that we are dealing specifically with the situation of a Ganaf, of a Jewish thief, someone who stole from other members of the community, and he has no money to make restitution to his victims. And therefore he is sold into slavery in order to raise the necessary funds and he can work off the debt he owes to his victims. Given this, you know, which is, you know, the whole story is quite unseemly. A Ghana in the community selling into slavery, you know, even if we acknowledge that these things exist and we have societal problems, we don't sweep it under the rug. Yes, we have these kind of issues in our community, and this is the Torah's prescribed solution for that, a detail with which we will get back to in a few moments. But the question is, why start the Parsha with this? After all, <clears throat> Parsha's Mishpatim is famous for being so full of so many other mitzvahs, which are ben aram lechavero, interpersonal laws, laws dealing with Jewish civil law, dini mamanos, torts, nizikin. There's so many other halachos which would make more sense to begin the parsha with. They deal with the, more, you could say, upper crust of society, just middle class, everybody, just the straight and narrow, the menches, the normal people of society who are you know, governed by a beautiful structure of halacha, of mutual respect and treating each other with honesty and fairness and all the halachos that make up Jewish civil law, why not start with those? Why start with something which is so unfortunate and so disheartening that we even have to deal with it? Okay, and if we do, fine, but why start with a ganaf, a Jewish thief, a slave? It seems to be, you know, getting off on such a disheartening and, you know, disappointing and a foot. Why not, you know, so to speak, start with things that were much more proud of. And then, Nebuch, when society has, you know, X percentage that's, that aren't living up to what they should, okay, then this is how we deal with them. But you know, why not deal with the, the mainstream society, the one that we're more proud of? So there are many answers to this question, but in the Sefer Darchi Musr, he quotes that he heard a beautiful idea from the altar of Kelm, the Sab of Kelm, who was one of the prime disciples of, of Israel Salanter, one of the great leaders in the Musr movement. 
And he explains that our question comes from a mistake, an assumption. We're looking at it as a lawgiver. And if you were writing a corpus of law like Parshish Mishpatim, it would make sense to start with the, the norm, the part of society, which is the law-abiding society. And then we could deal with the exceptions to that rule, the thief and the slave. However, he says, you have to realize Hashem is not some disinterested law professor or legislator. Hashem is a loving father, a loving parent. And he's writing about and to his children. And says the Altar of Kelm with such penetrating uh, insight, and I think so accurate psychological insight, if you ask a parent, no matter how many children he, he or she has, and how well they are doing, most of the parent's primary concern, attention, and thoughts go to that one child who is struggling. I aren't there so many other children, part of your family, who are doing well, successful, happy? Yes, and I'm thrilled for that. I'm thankful for that. But most of the attention is drawn to that one child who's struggling, in whichever way. And that's you know human nature, and that's paternal and maternal love, and that we are constantly focused on Dafka, the child who is struggling. Says the Saba of Kelm, that is true with Hashem as well. The Ebed Ivri, someone is struggling. Someone who just fought, fell off the wagon, is not living a good and productive life, must be so unhappy, so unsuccessful, unproductive, had to steal, now has to be sold into slavery. Could you imagine if you were the father or the mother of this person? It doesn't matter how many other children you had, how much nachas you had from the other children. So many of your thoughts and emotions will be focused on this one struggling child. Says the Saba of Kelm, Hashem is no different. The first person he's thinking of, the first law he's discussing is, how can we help, how can we rehabilitate my struggling child, the evidivory? And to explain this further, the Altar of Kelm explains in detail how the laws of evidivory are actually a form of rehabilitation. We, in modern society, I would say are biased to some extent because our image of slavery is based on what occurred over the last few hundred years in the Western world, where obviously the slaves were dehumanized and treated terribly. And while I certainly wouldn't want to be a slave myself, even in the Torah's society, we should realize that the Torah's conception of slavery, and certainly the way you would treat a slave, is far different than what we are more familiar with. There are many halachos which are specifically designed to regulate how the Odon, how the master and his family, treat the slave with utmost respect and at times even prioritizing the needs of the slave of the Evid over the needs of the master himself or his family. And it's actually great respect. And says the altar of Kelm, this is all done as a aim of rehabilitating the Ganaf, the thief. After all, we want to role model for him what a productive, healthy, honest, and ethical family is, how we treat each other, how we respect each other, how we're honest with each other. And by treating the Evid with respect, hopefully he'll learn to respect himself. Something went wrong earlier in his life, and he took to thievery in an immoral lifestyle. He doesn't have self-respect. But if we treat him with respect, we lift him up, hopefully we, re- we will rehabilitate him, and he'll not only make restitution, which of course is the first thing, but eventually when he goes free, he'll be a better and improved person who can then reintegrate and emerge into society a better and a more honest and ethical and successful and productive person. There's a halacha, he quotes, that we have to give ha'anaka. There's a certain financial golden parachute, if you will, that the Odon sends the slave free when he goes free after six years and says the altar of Kelm, this is not stam, a gift, but it's hopefully to give him a little bit of a start, give him some money to get started, to help him with a career. It's like job counseling, so to speak, to help him start his new life rehabilitated so he won't return to his first stage of thievery. And 
I think the message here that the Altar of Kelm is trying to communicate to us is that we have to realize how much Hashem loves us and view all the halachos in the Torah, as well as just things that happen in our life, through the prism of they're coming from a loving parent. And even though we don't always understand the halachot, we don't always understand things that occur in our life, we should realize that it's all coming from a sense of tremendous compassion and ultimately with an eye towards making us better, whether we're doing well and we can do even better, or we're struggling, Rahman al-Islam, like the, the Ganath and the Evidivri. But it's all coming from a place of a loving parent. Just like we trust our parents, we trust Hashem to have our best interests as well. The opening pasuk of this week's parsha tells us, "Ve'el hamishpatim asher tasim lifnehem." These are the judgments, the rules, the laws that you shall place before them. And perhaps on a simple level, as we've explained in previous shurim, this is really an introduction to the entire corpus of laws that will be revealed in the rest of the parsha. And in that sense, uh, the Torah, Moshe, is declaring, these are the rules which you should place before them, before the Jewish people. Uh, and that's like, you know, colon, here are all the laws I'm about to uh, tell you. However, the Gemara and the Medrash and many sources in the Torah Shabbal Peh, some of which are quoted by Rashi here, understand that this is an allusion to an additional point, which is that there's a separate and special halacha that when you have a mishpat, when you have a judgment, when you have a disagreement between litigants, people disagreeing, a business deal, anything gone wrong, potential damage, or argument between neighbors. So how do you settle that difference? Well, maybe you can settle it on your own, but obviously we know throughout human history and because of human nature, very often you need a, a third party to issue some kind of a binding, uh, objective, nonpartisan uh, decision. We would call a judge. And this is what we call a court system. And says the Gemara, says the Medrash, based on this pasuk, That is to say, there is a mitzvah da'oraisa that two Jews who get into a disagreement should have that disagreement adjudicated by a bastin, by a law of, excuse me, a tribunal or a court of uh, Rabbanim, of experts in halacha, based on the system of halacha, and they shouldn't go to a secular or non-Jewish court of law in order to settle that dispute. And that would actually be considered a violation, an iser daraisa, uh, to do so. It's not just an iser, it's really uh, striking, and Rashi paraphrases this already in our parsha. The, the level of extreme, there's no other really word for it, extreme language, uh, uncharacteristically extreme language that is used by Chazal, again, the Gemara and Gittin, the Medrash, the Rambam. They speak about not only if you go to a secular court, are you violating halacha, that's bad enough, but it's much worse than that. You are considered a heretic, mecharef or magadef. The Rambam says you are heirim yad b'toras Moshe. You have rebelled against the entire corpus of the Torah. And in order to sharpen the point of just how egregious evidently the Torah views this prohibition, the halacha is, and this is brought down in all the sources, and we accept this as the actual halacha, that this would be true even if, hypothetically, you would know that the decision and the outcome of the secular court would be exactly the same as halacha. In other words, obviously, if the Beitin would rule based on the principles of halacha one way, and you went to a secular court and the ruling, the decision was different, we can understand why halacha would object to that. But it goes much further than that. Even if the result would be the same, the very fact that you went to the other system 
that itself is considered a violation, and not only a violation, as I mentioned, uh, very, very significant and uh, terrible, terrible thing. The way Rashi quotes it, anyone who brings Dine Yisrael if Negoim, Mechalal Hashem, Umuyakir Shem Avodazara, and perhaps it's in these comments of Rashi, which are based on earlier sources, that we get a clue as to what the real, ultimate, deeper issue is. And that is that by going to another court system, even if the result ends up being the same as halacha, so it's not a substantive difference. Now that's frankly unlikely, but even if it would be the same result, the kernel, the core, the essence of the prohibition is not the decision that the court would make, in variation, in variance of what the halacha would have said, rather the very fact that you went to another system of law, in a sense, is an implicit endorsement of that system as the more superior system over the Torah, and that's why this is considered so heretical and so damaging and genuinely achil Hashem. You might think of it as an individual, isolated thing, even if you did something wrong. But why is it that the whole? Why is it considered so terrible? And the answer is because you have. In essence, whether you realize it or not, but it's tantamount to you basically saying that system of law is superior to the Torah system. And that itself is obviously something very, very fundamental and damaging to our faith in our fidelity towards halacha. On a practical level, and again, obviously, you can only imagine many, many shurim articles and books can and have been written on this topic. We're just touching on some of the highlights. Uh, But I want to highlight, if I can... Uh, three exceptions to this rule, notwithstanding that this is the basic prohibition, but the Rishonim and even contemporary postgame are quite aware that there can be many situations in which uh, we need to make use of and avail ourselves of a secular court system. So when are there exceptions? So there aren't that many, but there are a few and they are important. Number one, uh, the Shacharach rules are based on the rush, that, and this is the most commonly applied one, even if you're willing to go to Besdin, but if the other party is not willing, you don't have to just lose and just fold and just give in because you want to go to Besdin and they refuse. If the other party was not, is not willing to go to Besdin, then you can get permission from a Besdin, and in that case, what's known as a Heta Arkos, then you are allowed to go to the secular court. So, of course, the ideal is to go to Besdin, but if you are dealing with a litigant or a, some other party who is not willing then you are not punished for that. You can then go to the secular court. Number two is that very often, even if you're going to go to Bezdin, it takes time. And the fear might be that, especially in a secular society that most of us live in, especially outside of Israel, that by the time that gets done, maybe the person that you're dealing with uh, has you know, taken the money, has run, who knows. So Ramosha Feinstein and others in the 20th century pointed out that something like a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order, a TRO, that can be used right away from the secular courts, and that is not a violation, and then you can go to Besdin afterwards. And lastly, uh, what if the parties agree to what we call arbitration or mediation? So here, a number of posts can point out, it really depends on what that means. If there are a set of um, binding precedents that the arbitrator or the mediator must follow, then it doesn't matter what you call it, that's the same as going to a court, and that's a prohibition. But if you're going to a unbiased, objective third party who's basically not going to use any rule of any specific law, but rather is going to use common sense, fairness as the basis of their judgment, then that's not subjugating yourself to any system, and therefore that would be okay. Parshas Mishpatim is filled with many, many mitzvos, and not a small percentage of those are 
things that relate to Dine Mamonos, the laws of financial responsibilities that we have towards each other. And within that, uh, not a small percentage relate specifically to the area of Nizikin, the idea of torts, or if we or our property damage someone else or their property, what financial responsibilities do we have towards remuneration for uh, that damage. With that background in mind, I think it would be interesting to consider a very fascinating Gemara in Baba Kama, Daf Lama, Rabban Aleph, where the Gemara asks a provocative question. If a person wants to become a chassid, a person wants to be truly righteous, spiritually ambitious, punctilious in his or her mitzvah observance, how should they do it? What should area of halacha, of Jewish ideas and values should they focus on? And in order to answer this incredibly important and provocative question, the Gemara actually suggests three different opinions. The first opinion uh, relates to what we just discussed. The Gemara says, the first possibility is, Lakayim mili dinazikin, to study, to learn, to observe faithfully the laws of monetary damages and torts. The second answer of the Gemara is, to study and to observe faithfully the various mitzvos or ideals and values from Pirkei Avos. And lastly, says the Gemara, a third answer, to study and to faithfully and carefully observe the laws of brachos, the brachos that we make before or after we eat food. And I think the simplest understanding of this Gemara is that each of the different examples that are mentioned represent a certain category, a broader category, of Jewish values and Jewish life. Whether it's Benaram Lamakom, a relationship with God, as represented by Perke Avos, our relationship with each other, Benaram Lachavero, as represented by Nizikin, monetary responsibilities we have towards each other, or the responsibilities in the area of self-development, what's known as Bein Adam La'atzmo, between a person and him or herself, and that is represented by Pirkei Avos, the idea of the values, the ethical and uh, midos and character traits that are espoused and hopefully we can develop by studying uh, the incredible Masechet known as Pirkei Avos. Nevertheless, if that is the case, it is still somewhat surprising, and this is a question that is asked by the Nesivos Shalom, the famed Slonim Rebbe in his commentary to our Parsha, why specifically is the example given Nizikin? monetary damages of torts. If the broader point is that Benaram Lachavero is important and that treating each other with respect is important, you know, here, here for that, but why specifically of all the different examples of Benaram Lachavero and even all the other areas of Dine Mamonos, why specifically focus on Dine Nizikin, the laws of monetary damages, torts? So to answer this fascinating and I think very important question, Nesif Solom suggests that on a deeper spiritual level, perhaps what the Gemara is hinting at is that these aren't that Dini Nazikin here doesn't just mean the laws of financial remuneration uh, if there's damage to person or property, but specifically on a deeper spiritual level relates to things which can cause nezek, can cause damage to ourselves, spiritual damage. There are different ways at which we can damage ourselves. And if a person wants to become a chassid, if a person wants to become spiritually ambitious, punctilious, and genuinely religiously ambitious and spiritually successful, a person has to focus on nezikin, of uprooting the things in his or her life which can cause nezik, can cause spiritual damage. In order to give us a roadmap for how to do this, says the Nesiva Shalom, we should turn towards the opening of Masechah's Baba Kama, which is the most concentrated dedicated place in all of the halacha and Tarsha Peh, which deals with these halachos of Dini Mamaros on a legalistic uh, monetary way from the perspective of torts. and says the Nesiva Shalom we should look to this area of halacha not only for what it tells us about the monetary responsibilities we have towards each other but with a more uh, 
spiritual and a deeper uh, eye with a Hasidic lens, as it were, to see these as symbols or metaphors for the spiritual sources of damage, that for the sources of spiritual damage that if we can't control, will uh, injure ourselves and prevent ourselves from becoming Hasidim. And that's really what the Gemara means. What are the different areas and categories of Nezek that are discussed in Baba Kama that we can then understand on a deeper level? Says in Asiva Shalom, you look at the Mishnah, you look at the opening of Masechus Baba Kama, you'll see these are four categories, and these can be all understood on a deeper spiritual level. Number one is sure, if your ox damages someone else's property. Says in Asiva Shalom, this represents the sin of, or the Yetzirah of pride. The Medrash tells us in Shemos Rabbah that the ox, the shore, is the pride of all behemoths, and just like a wild shore who can't control itself, and therefore that's why it gores uh, someone else or someone else's property, so too some of us have pride inside of ourselves, and if we can't control it, it'll come out and create damage. What's the second category? Bore. Bore is if you have a pit or some kind of a cavernous place that you've dug uh, in the public thoroughfare and you didn't properly uh, secure it, you didn't cover it, and then someone else's property uh, gets hurt or damaged in the bore, you have financial responsibility. On a deeper spiritual level, says in the Siva Shalom, this represents the opposite of pride, the opposite of ego. Pride can lead to the fall but so can its opposite. If a person is, so to speak, down in the pit, down in the dumps, if you've sinned once or twice or whatever many times, and then you start giving up on yourself, you lose your sense of pride in a healthy way. You have yush, a loss of hope. You've given up. You have a lack of self-confidence. That often leads to even more dangerous and injurious uh, behaviors. So that's a second thing that we need to control. Third, says the Gemara, another example of a financial a category of damages is known as ma'ave, which is understood as shane if your ox or your animal eats other people's property or produce and causes damage that way. Says the Nesiva Shalom on a deeper spiritual level, this relates to the whole category of halachos and ethics that relate to food. Food is a very basic passion that people have. It's something that we have to do every day. Uh, many times a day, and there are all sorts of halachas about what we eat, how we eat, etc., etc., including brachos, and all of that is a third category of religiosity which we need to be careful about. And last but not least, says the Gemara, there is a known as hever, which has to do with ash. If there's a fire in your property and it gets out of control and it goes into someone else's property and it damages, you have financial penalties in such a case. Says the Nesiva Shalom on a deeper level, that Aish represents more broadly uncontrolled passions that are out of control, the fire inside of you uh, for passionate experiences that you simply uh, cannot control. Put together, says the Nesiva Shalom, Ha'iman delemevi chasida, you want to become a chasid, you have to focus on controlling all four of these nesikin. Don't let these four areas control your life, damage yourself, not only hurt other people, but hurt yourself. If you control and uproot these four areas of Yetzirah, then you can truly be a chasid.